Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Take the Hill, which is a leadership podcast designed to connect you with the human experience of leadership. So welcome back, Dennis and Angelo. Hey, Patrick. Boy, the energy's high this morning. I'm ready. It is, my friend. Good morning, everybody. All good stuff. So we are super excited to have our guest here with us today, Dr. Jonas Prida. Uh, Welcome to the show. Thank you, everybody, and hello to Take the Hill Land. Uh, I'm excited to be here, and if energy is what we're after, I'll be able to provide it. It's going to be certainly an amplified show today, no doubt. So for those of you who have not had the opportunity to meet or work with Dr. Parita, uh, he currently serves as our interim or acting provost, and he oversees academic excellence and innovation throughout our university. Dr. Parita holds a PhD in English from Tulane University, and he's received his MA in English from the University of Maine, Orono. Prior to joining Point Park, Dr. Parita spent eight years at the College of St. Joseph's in Rutland, Vermont, acted in serving faculty and administrative capacities during his time there, uh, most recently serving as the Vice President for Academic Affairs and Dean of Faculty. So no doubt that experience not only developed uh, certain extensive set of leadership skills, but also has brought with you, you know, many experiences and insight that we hope to kind of uncover today in our show. So, which is a really good starting point, um, which is, you know, just from your perspective, how do you define leadership, Dr. Frida? Well, uh, I'll do this trick and uh, I'll, I'll define it by the negative first. The leadership is not somebody who sits in the biggest office. Uh, And, and, and to me, that's, that's one of these almost norms that we used to have about how leadership worked because at a certain time and place, that's what we saw it as. And I was never really on board with that even as a younger person. But now that I'm in a position of being an academic leader, it's become even more important to me to realize that leadership is in one way, it's about doing the things that other people are less enthusiastic to do. Um, Because one of the in, in my role, I try never to put somebody in a position to do something I would also do, right? So if I ask somebody to revise a syllabus, if necessary, I'll revise a syllabus, right? Or if I'm asking somebody to do another task that they may not be so excited about doing, I want them to know that I'm, I'm as willing as they are to do that. And, and, and to me, that, that adds an element of authenticity to, to how you engage in being a leader. Um, and I also think that leadership is, is fundamentally about like, what is your vision for a future? And that lots of people get, get trapped in like, how are we solving this problem that's happening right now? And to me, good leaders are looking two, three, four steps in, in, into whatever the problem is. And that, that's where they're trying to operate from. Because it's easy to think about like, oh, how, what gets us out of this box? But I'm more interested in like, how do we completely design the box so nobody gets trapped in it? Yeah, and that's something that I think for those of us who had the opportunity to work with you, um, you're a very authentic individual. And it, that really shows through from the moment that I, you, know, you meet somebody or begin working with them. How do you how did you get comfortable, you know, understanding, like you said, you developed as a leader, but how did you get comfortable maintaining that authenticity, you know, as you moved into successive positions? Yeah. um, Well, as a younger person, uh, I I was like one of those punk rock kids who went and smoked cigarettes in the park and part of, and I never grew out of that in some ways. And that, 
I, I grew out of the cigarette smoking, to be fair. Because <laughs> <Right? laughs> at, at a certain point, you realize you can't keep doing that. Sure, sure. Uh, but just this sense of, of it's okay to be who you are and that if positions or parts of your job don't always connect with what you want your authentic self to be, then you need to make decisions about what's going to be the sacrifice you're willing to make to continue to have that job. Um, I never really cared that I had to wear a, a shirt and a tie and a suit because those are just costumes to me anyways, right? And, and so it's like, oh, I'll, I'll play the game here. I'll wear the most ridiculous suit and tie combo I can possibly find and I'm calling your bluff because then once you can kind of like get into a classroom or a position where you're talking to other academic leaders the sort of the, the power of your ideas oftentimes can take over and it, to me this really works I, I'm a student empowerment leader as well right like that's to me fundamentally what we're about in education is like how do we provide opportunities for students and an ability to have that sense of who you are resonates exceptionally well with students because they're still going through that same discovery. And if they can see somebody who's like, oh, this person both is successful and has managed to maintain their own identity in that path to success, then maybe I can do it as well. I, I never wanted to grow up and be like, a guy who had a corporate office, right? That was never really into it. I never really wanted to tell people what to do or any of those kind of things. So it's like, yeah, I'll have this job now where I'll try not to do that stuff. You know, I always wanted to tell people what to do, but Patrick never listens. But uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, I, I can relate with what you're saying. Um, you know, I, I went out to the parking lot to smoke and that's all I'll say. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> it, <laughs> you know, and, and I love the idea of authenticity because that's uh, kind of how I've uh, structured my leadership style and so forth. My wife says, whatever's in my head comes out my mouth and, and so forth. But, but I got to ask you the question also that you reflected on how students react to it, but how do your employees react to it? I mean, when you start getting into like reacting with employees, it could be a little bit different. Do they appreciate your authenticity? I know Patrick does and, and Angelo, but do you ever run into any issues because you're authentic. Oh yeah, you bet. Um, so it, one of the things that's been a challenge for me, probably the last couple, well, here we go, as long as we're talking about this stuff. Uh, I am a renowned swearer. <laughs> you know, I'm, and there, there's not necessarily, there's a time and a place for being that person. And one of the things I've gotten better at is recognizing time and place to do that. Sort of going to what your observation was, Dennis, of like, there's certain kinds of people who you're going to manage who that's not really their bag, right? And, and that it's going to immediately kind of be off-putting to them. So a part of it has been my emotional regulation of like, oh, I just don't need to like F-bomb this right now to make a point because it's actually going to make the reverse point for me. Um, and that in a lot of my other cases where I'm working with people on day to day who I, you know, I manage in some way, uh, one of the things that I think works for me, especially in an educational setting, is that they know that I fundamentally want student success. And people are, are, are willing to overlook a lot of, of minor imperfections, I think, in academic leadership if they know that 
that, that I'll storm a barricade for a student, right? Like I'll knock down any door, I'll do whatever I can to try to help a student get from A to B, as long as that student also wants to join me in the storming of the barricade. Um, perhaps not the best metaphor to use right after where we are right now, but I'm sure we can edit this from the programming. Um, <laughs> but, but that idea of like, once they kind of, when we can focus it on the people we care the most about, that are students, then a lot of the other parts to, what I'm bringing, people can be like, oh yeah, but his heart's in the right place. And, and that doesn't always solve every problem, but that solves a lot of them. Well, we're just going to reference that back to Lemez, right? There's a lot of passion there. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the real Barrick, yeah, 1848. That's what I'm actually talking about. <laughs> that's where we're going. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. But you said something that was really interesting to me, and I really liked it. And I, this is one of the things too that I talk with my students about is, you know, it's you know, don't necessarily judge an individual, like you said, from what they look like or the way they may be behaving in a particular meeting or whatever, because I think, you know, it's the authenticity or the depth of their words and knowledge and what they bring to the table in terms of value. I, a lot of times, as you said, you know, that stuff is overlooked because again, each of us have value that we're going to be adding to the conversation. You know, and as you step into those leadership roles, like I said, that's why you're there, right? Or else you wouldn't be there. Yeah. And, and I, to me, it's one of the great things that we're going to see in the next 10 years is there's going to be a more and more diverse groups of leaders where th that that's only going to help because it's going to be more diverse perspectives on solving potential challenges and people will become able to be like oh this person is blank but i, I don't have to overlook what they're saying believing or doing just because they're different than me and, and i think a lot of that training is happening now at universities and colleges because we know that diverse work groups and diverse leadership teams work better they their their outcomes are more effective all of the things that we kind of want out of leadership we know work better when there's more different people in a group uh, dr preda um as you reflect upon your professional journey um, would you share a significant moment that helped define you as a leader and, you know, how you became a leader? Yes. Uh, so I'm at the College of St. Joseph. Um, it's got an undergraduate population at the time of 200 students. Uh, and, and I'm not exaggerating there. That's about what it was. And there, the incoming first year class was 17 students. And when that happens, you begin to ask questions about, is this school going to continue? What is going to go on, right? If we lose three of these students, we're in bad shape. Um, and a, a new president came in that year, um, a, a person who ended up becoming my, my mentor. And to just watch him come in. And when we were interviewing him, he knew what every faculty person on campus worked on. And so he asked, he actually asked me about my Conan book and how it went. He asked the person who was the historian on campus about the article that he had produced. So he just knew he knew all of the stuff about the 15 to 17 of us who were interviewing him. And, and that's when I had this moment of like, oh, OK, th this person's coming at this from a completely different perspective than I ever did as a faculty person where we have a tendency just to see things in your department. Um, and then after working with with that person for six months, uh, he's the one who clued me into this idea, which then changed the direction of my life, of the way to impact the most amount of students the most regularly is, is to be in administration. 
faculty people have a very close relationship with their students, but even if you're teaching five classes with 50 students in them a piece, which is a lot of work, right? That's only 250 students every semester you're getting to impact. But as an administrator, you're potentially impacting 4,000 students a semester. And if you're willing to kind of like steer through the complexities of that, you can really influence and impact a lot of students in ways that they may never know, but will really help them 20 or 30 years down the line. And so that was the moment for me that kind of crystallized of like, oh, okay, this person both did all of an incredible amount of homework and knew everything about all of us. And then he's the one who gave me the like, here's a way to think about how leadership works and that you might be good at it. And so um, I took the bait and went from there. I think that's a really interesting point that, you know, it's definitely worth reminding our audience of. And, and I do this in my classes as well. You know, it, there's a distinct difference, I think, between somebody who is a great manager or a great administrator or a great leader or CEO and somebody who is a true leader, right? Uh, and I think, like you said, not to diminish those individuals who are great at what they do, but there's, there's just something different about the individuals that you just described where they just have something else in there. Yeah. Right? And, and you, after, you might not see it when you're younger, but as you move through your professional career, like I think you really start to pick up on those individuals that have something else that's different. Yeah, when, when you can see a hundred potential candidates for a, a, an upper, an executive tier leadership, you know, whatever that is, president, provost, VPs, whatever, and be able to be like, oh, those are the four that actually have it, right? Where you can kind of strangely tell, and it isn't, to me, it's not just charisma, because we know that that unfortunately veers in a certain direction, right? Of like, oftentimes mediocre males are, are very charismatic, because it's a, it's a tool that you can use to kind of like move your way up the ladder. And so it isn't just that, it's also like, what is your depth of thinking on these subjects? That if I ask you a question and you don't immediately know the answer, are you comfortable enough in who you are to pause and reflect, take it might seem forever in a conversation, but it's really only 10 seconds to be able to like give me a, a more holistic or long-term answer. To me, those are those moments where you're just like, oh yeah, this, this person has it. And, and as you said, Patrick, it's important to recognize the, the incredible value and worth organizationally to people who are good managers. I'm not necessarily that person all the time, right? I don't always remember to put somebody's timesheet in. I'm not great with like reminding people what like when they should come and go i i mean i show up to campus days when the campus is closed right so that's not true story <laughs> so i'm like i'm i'm not great at that component to it but i am good at articulating values and a mission and a message now you also said that before we move on too much further you said something about this idea of managing complexity uh, and, and navigating yeah. those time frames how do you do that um that, that's a good question. So, so part of it is based on, uh, I do a lot of backwards design stuff of where if I know that we need, if we have two and a half years to redesign this department, this school, this idea, I try to work backwards from there, uh, know where we need to go and then build out as many of the 
markers along the way as possible. And that doesn't solve the complexity question, but it lets you know when you're going to have to start facing the complexity question. And then you can have a team ready for it. And, you know, because it's, it's oftentimes the, the complex parts of questions and answers don't immediately present themselves. It's only after we're like part of the way into it do we realize that this thing's like, oh, okay, this is going to need to be the registrar, enrollment management, standard for student success, faculty. When you begin to realize there's going to be a lot of different people involved in it. Uh, and so one of the ways I try to overcome that is just think about it backwards. And, and another one that, that I just do because I like this is I just like thinking about problems. And how do I how do I reframe the problem not as a problem but as a solution that I just haven't figured out yet? Or how do I move this from a scarcity-based discussion to an abundance-based one? Where there, these are all things that we know we can do and and work, but sometimes we don't give ourselves enough time to think about them or do them because we get trapped in these in in narratives about like. Oh, our students can't instead of being like, please, but our students can. And then as soon as we do that, then a whole bunch of other solutions open up and it might make the complexity won't go away, but the complexity can be contained and channeled. Yeah, yeah. I, I got to ask you, uh, and I'm sorry, Patrick, I didn't mean to interrupt there, but I mean, I, I really embrace that concept of thinking backwards and I think it's really good, but, but how do you take people with you on that journey? I mean, there's gotta be some challenges when you're, when you're trying to get people to go with you on that journey, thinking backwards, because a lot of people can't, they can't, uh, they can't grasp it. They can't yeah. embrace it. How, how do you encourage them to, to embrace your. Um, one of the ways I do it is I'm, I'm okay with getting people from a wide range of perspectives in the, at a university or organization where I don't really care about your title that much. I mean, I, I do because it's important to, to obey like chain of command and all those good things. But I'll have people in meetings who are an assistant director. I'll have people in that same meeting who's a full professor. I'll have someone from the registrar's office. And then I think by getting all of those people sort of involved in it, you it gives you a chance for those people to have some organic leadership opportunities as well. And for them to grab onto that point of like, oh, I'm not gonna be able to figure out how transfer credits necessarily are gonna work in this backwards design. But two people in this discussion might, because that just happens to be the thing that, that they're interested in or that they find intellectually appealing. And it's not always, it's not always what your role is defined at by the university. It might just be what you're intellectually interested in. So we have faculty members who, uh, you know, you, you might be the chair of, the, I'll use zebra studies because that's our favorite fake department, um, that you're the chair of zebra studies, but you're really interested in uh, general education redesign. And so I'll just throw you on that. I mean, like, yeah, I know you that zebra studies is what you're getting paid to do, but you really like this thing. And so work with all of us as a group and, and here's your chance to be an organic leader. And then that person will take it as far as they want to. And lots of times it works. And then sometimes it'll just be like, no, I can't really figure this one out. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's no problem. And then we'll just try to like redesign that team, find some other people who might be able to work on the problem and, and just kind of have it go from there. Uh, Hopefully that answered part of the question. I think it 
Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think it did because I mean, what it is is it at, at its essence is it's almost human centered design, right? And we're empowering yes. individuals, you know, to like you said, it may not necessarily be in their respective roles, but I'm going to put you because you have a certain skill set or vision on this challenge or this problem in this neighborhood because collectively in that group, something good is going to come out of it. Yeah. Um, is anybody here familiar with the term uh, about plexics or plectic learning? I am not, but I'd love to hear about it. Uh, so it's coming out of uh, cybernetics and <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's this dynamic. Um, how do you look for the simple design and also how do you look at the most at the complexities that are around that simple design and what's the relationship among and between that stuff and so if you can figure out a lever that's on the simple part of how the organization is designed sometimes it will change the stuff that's on the complexity part of it but at the same time every time you mess with the stuff that's complex it often it will it needs to go back down into the simple so plexics is is the understanding of like that's how a lot of organizations when they're operating healthily should and can work is that it is that relationship between the simple and the complex. I'm still working on this one myself. Uh, I only got introduced to it about six weeks ago, but um, I, I'm, I'm really interested by it because it, it's kind of got a bit of a sci-fi element. And uh, I, I like being able to draw learning ideas from different disciplines. And that's, I think the key. Right, that ability and, and what makes you know certain individuals such as yourself really effective is that ability to draw from multiple disciplines, because I think we get stuck sometimes, right? Like you said, I'm in zebra studies. I don't know anything about you know anything else that's happening over here in this side of the university, uh, and like you said, that ability to draw individuals together and say, guess what? You know what? Collectively, you know, your individual skill sets are actually more powerful because of the way that you approach a problem or the way that you have conversations or the way that you look at something. Um, so that's, that's really interesting. Yeah, uh, hard agree. And I think that's one of the things that we can do teaching students mm -hmm. is give them problem solving mindsets that aren't necessarily always about your specific history 205 class, but it's more about, okay, what's our broad mindset about how we understand and engage a problem? And as we continue to, as we continue to engage learning sciences, not learning science, but like learning sciences broad, uh, broadly, I think we're going to learn more and more about like, oh, okay, a lot of this is about teaching students how to handle complex problems because they may never have to answer a history problem in their real life but these these skills that they learned in their history course are going to help them at whatever freelance job or whatever they're going to do into the future and so I, I really like that idea of us continuing to build in problem solving mindsets kind of like across curriculums in addition to content driven material which to me is also important right I, my phd is in english and like so uh, content does matter so, Dr. Preeta, I'm really excited to have you on the show here today. I've met you a few few times in the past. We've uh, collaborated before. and um, We have our own show, Angelo. <laughs> <laughs> Angelo and Jonas in the morning. <laughs> we do, I love and it. I, we actually have to get back together for episode yeah. three. Um, yep. Pretty soon. Um, but um, in all honesty, when I first met you, um, and, and you probably don't remember this, I bumped into you, into you in the Center for Student Success. And... Um, I don't know if this is a good or a bad thing, but I was actually more excited to meet you because I knew I heard 
that you were in the music that you played in a band. Oh yeah. And uh, <laughs> you know, I really, I love music and I love higher education the same way that I love music. And so you were kind of like a unicorn to me because I didn't <laughs> never experienced this before in my young professional career where I was like, wow, this is a, you know, an associate provost. Uh, I, I know you're an interim. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, this doesn't even seem like real life, but like, this is inspirational for somebody like me that is obsessed with both areas. So I'm curious, how has music influenced the way that you lead or your leadership style? Yeah. Um, so in addition to being in a band, I also, and, and Angela, this is something that we'll also share, um, was a longtime promoter of underground punk rock and heavy metal when I um, lived in Baltimore and then a little bit up here, but it less so uh, and so just that idea of like throwing a show is a lot like orchestrating a class or a university or whatever right you you got a book a venue so it's it's that's part of it you have to be able to get the bands together to make it happen you have to you know make sure that all the legal component and, and just like this sense of that you're that there's an orchestration that's going on that's not necessarily the same as being in the band but you need to have somebody behind the scenes to give all those bands a place to play uh and then it just so happens that your band always gets to close <laughs> which was the case in mine uh the, the band i was with when that was going on was perverse osmosis where our usual closing set was 10 songs 12 minutes uh and then at, the lights would come on at the venue and we play ghostbusters on repeat until everybody left uh, so that, that's one of the, how I sort of like these things came together for me is, is from the, almost the DIY promotion angle, right? Getting back to what I talked about at the beginning of, I don't mind getting my hands dirty. I'll set up chairs. I'll take chairs down. I'll sweep out a room, whatever. It's just like, I want to be engaged in students' lives and help them do it. And so th that DIY element is part of it. Dennis, I see your mic is off. So you, you might have something you want to ask. Oh, no, no, I just turned no. it on. You can go oh, ahead. Uh, okay. Yeah, I was just rambling. Um, and then uh, from the being in a band or music, I didn't really, I, I didn't play an instrument until I was 35. Um, I did all uh, lights for bands when I was in New Orleans and then in, in Baltimore. And so I was, I was like a, ro I enjoy being a roadie. Because um, then you kind of like, you get to be in the band, but you don't actually have to, know how to play an instrument uh but then when i finished my phd i had free time for the first time in my life and i was like i want to learn to play the drums uh and so i just taught myself uh, i played stand-up drums where i took an old uh floor tom put it on a camping chair got the crummiest snare drum i could find and a broken cymbal and just started playing one two punk rock and that's how i learned to play music and be in a band um and so just this sense of like that you can always learn stuff especially if you're willing to have a period where you're not good at it um which which is okay because i'm like i'm i'm you know i'm not playing classical music right it's not when, when the usual audience for your show is three people they're not really making judgments about like oh he's a little off time here um and so like being willing to just try stuff fail a bunch have some disasters but all that time trying to put it in the context of learning um, to me really helps and just know that every year I'll th this is connected with music but this is just like about learning every year I try to learn how to do something new um, or, or have new experiences some kind so right now I'm learning to play the bass which is not something that I ever knew how to do but there's enough of a crossover to drums that you kind of like 
you know, the, the, you could think of the bases that drums that you play sideways, right? You're just counting one, two, three, four. And w when that's all you care about, it's kind of easy to do. And so like next year, I'll learn to play the actual guitar. Um, and, and so just this ability to constantly be learning it, it, to me is that great intersection between music and in some strange way, academic administration. So tell me yeah, a little bit. Good. Okay. Oh, well, before, before we get too far down there, tell me a little bit about, you know, so obviously you probably listen to a lot of genres of music is, is I do. Be my yeah. guess, which is great. And we're going to find out what's on your playlist before long, but so, you know, a good song comes on the radio or, or iTunes or whatever it is you're listening to. What do you notice first? About a new uh, song? Until recently, I focused on lyrics because that was the thing that was most accessible to me as a person who didn't play a musical instrument. And so when, when you don't play anything, it's why jazz held no interest to me for such a long time because I didn't know what they were doing. It's like, this seems cool, but like when you can't play a guitar and you can't play the drums, you don't really know that it's good. <laughs> Right? It just seems like this is unbelievable what they're doing, but I'm not smart enough to understand this stuff. Uh, but since I started playing the drums and, and have been now that for about 10 years, that's the thing that's most easily rememberable to me now. But, but now that I've been picking up the bass, especially in like, so I listened to a lot of 50s and 60s stuff, um, especially like four track recording style, I can immediately hear like, oh, there's the bass in that. And so in the same way that when I finally pick up the guitar in a year or a couple of years, it all have that same ability to hear it a little bit better. And then more parts of the music make sense. You know, you, you, you talk about the, and again, I'm, I'm, I go way back. I'm an old rocker and, uh, Oh, I'll have lots <laughs> to talk to you about that. <laughs> but, um, you know, uh, Angela brought up a great point and you kind of expanded on it. And, and it's about that passion. Uh, you have a passion to help students, to lead a community of educators, to do uh, their best. And then you have a passion for music. And you have, you know, I think that's part of being a good leader is that you think outside the box and you're not just stuck in one dogmatic uh, pigeonholed. Uh, because I think I've learned more about leadership and so many things that I've done outside of my positions, because I've been in positions of, of authority in the past. And, and then I, now I became a professor. Our skill set. So leading into that. So what are some other skill sets that you value that have um, maybe increased or challenged your role as a leader? Uh, about for me or for people that I work with or that people I try to hire? Which one of those? Okay. Any one of the you choose to talk about. <laughs> uh, so I'll, I'll, do the, the, I'll do the one about what I look for in people first. Because to me, part of my job is constantly providing learning and development for everybody I work with. Um, and so when I'm looking to hire somebody for a, like a coordinator position or an assistant director or any of that kind of stuff. One of my number ones is who's the person who, who, and I know this, we can't have a metric for this, but like, who's the person who's the weirdest that I just talked to, <laughs> right? Who's the, yes, thank you. Right. Oh, like Angelo would have an awesome chance because of his hair, right? Um, the person who's my present coordinator, Jamie Kerr, bunch of gauges and, you know, her hair changes color, huge, you know, she just, they're just interesting people. And so I'm like, oh, okay, I can probably teach this person 
the skills that they need for this job. But what I can't teach them is the disposition to think about things in a different way. And and uh, this is again, it's not I don't mean this to be disrespectful for people who have approached their own learning growth in a more linear pattern or see development as a I, I would like to wear a gray final suit every day to work kind of a thing. There's always going to be plenty of positions for those kind of people. But for what I look for and, and for me, people who are who can really help change dynamics, it's always those people who are like they have a slightly different CV. Um, again, I'll just use Jamie as an example because I work with her every day. She started off in culinary school and then had a terrible experience, went to a community college. Hey, I went to a community college, so already that says something. And then just to see people like face adversity, change, have challenges, figure out what they want to do, all of that stuff to me is in some ways a better, broader indicator of somebody's success than I got a 4.0 in high school and then I got – you know, I'm on my seventh straight semester getting four O's at Point Park. It's like, that's awesome. Good for you. You're not going to have any problem ever being successful. But I'm looking for somebody with a different kind of success metric. I think it's a really good point because if you look at teams across the board, right, or organizations across the board, military, civilian, those teams that excel, and you look at the individuals on that team, as you said, they're not the individuals who you know, may take a more linear path. Right. It's the folks that have the diverse experience, eclectic backgrounds, different hobbies, different experiences. Like those are the individuals that come together. And that is why they succeed because they question the status quo or they look at things differently in a nonlinear pattern, or they look at it or experience it because again, they've had diverse backgrounds. Yeah. Right. And it's not like you said, it's it's not very linear. And and that's good, <laughs> especially moving forward, as you said at the beginning, yeah. right? If, if we're, we're going to be creating kind of the new normal of what things are going to be like across many industries. And those are the teams you need. Diverse experiences. I mean, I, and, and Patrick knows my background is very diverse and I didn't come up, uh, I didn't, I didn't go the traditional route uh, by any means. And I think what people don't realize is that you, you gain this insight that many people don't have. And, and, and I think that many times you're more flexible in a way that uh, embraces or includes others and, and invites others. They, they're, they're happy to be a part of that uh, process and, 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 and they just engage more. And I've met people who have gone through the linear and, you know, the traditional and man, it's like, it's like watching paint dry, you know, you're like, seriously? You know, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, I've, I've, I've had individuals tell me it's because of my experiences and the, and the way I approach things that I'm able to reach certain people. And I think that's important, reaching people and understanding uh, their views and their understanding and putting yourself in their shoes and so forth that helps instead of me saying, oh, just do it because I said so type, you know, leadership. So I appreciate that. I do. Um, so I was a community college graduate and then I transferred to another. I went to the University of Alaska Anchorage for a year and then transferred from there to the University of Calgary and graduated from there with my undergrad. And so, you know, I, I had a lot of different experiences just in that undergrad transferring around, met a lot of different kinds of people, lived in a foreign country. It was just like it, it, 
you know, it's it's kind of like America, but it's not, right? Canadians reasonably say so. It's not really America Junior. It's its own country. Uh, as a young person, I grew up in central Nevada in a farming town of 2,000 people. And so I kind of have that ability as you were saying, you, you, you can talk to a wider variety of people because like there wasn't a whole lot of people going to college out of Yarrington. You know, most people became townies and, you know, they, they lived two doors down from their parents and it, it had a certain element of like, that's, that's great because it's, it's small town life. Um, but knowing that I could talk to a person there about like, Hey, how's your garlic growing? And then, 15, 20, 30 years later, be able to talk to somebody about like, oh, have you checked out the new uh, article in the Chronicle of Higher Education on blah, blah, blah. To, to just have that like spectrum to me is really important because most people in the world, and I, I know this is hard to believe, don't work in academics. <laughs> I, you know, I appreciate you put it a lot better than I did, uh, Dr. Preda. <laughs> so um, that was kind of what I was trying to say. Yeah. But I'm going to hand it over there to Patrick now. <laughs> <laughs> oh no no before you're gone what's your favorite classic rock album uh, i'm a led zeppelin fan so Which... anything by led zeppelin okay uh you got a I'm number an old, or... i'm an old bob seger fan and and oh i've recently discovered that old old bob seger stuff is is like way different than i expected he's got some good protest songs uh i can't remember that it's like one plus one is like all of that is very weird and it's like yeah. is this really the same bob seger <laughs> uh, right now i'm there's a a youtube channel called sea of tranquility where a a person who's essentially us right this is what it feels like he's reviewing the top uh his top 28 albums of 1971 because it's the 50th anniversary of all of these and i never really realized until he's doing this of like all of these albums came out the same year right it's pretty and again this is what the rest of popular music is going to be like right it's because there's just so much of it it's hard to know that like tiny dancer by uh elton john comes out the same year as master of reality by black sabbath right that's and so that's so bizarre that 71 produces both of those uh records wow. yeah Good. so that's what i'm doing in my basement everybody nice. <laughs> Angela, what do you got? yeah dr Prita, you uh you mentioned something about um almost like translating skills um from different stages of your life uh you mentioned like the diy punk scene and yeah motion and things like that and you know i run a music podcast i'm deep in the music scene i like pop punk punk you know hard rock stuff like that um and being in higher education i at first i guess as a young professional i was always scared like how do i maintain my individuality but still be professional about it and i think that there's hesitation or fear due to change and not knowing how things would be received, but there's skill sets that you acquire, like in these DIY punk scenes, promoting bands. Yeah. It's a business. It is a business to do these things. And I am always trying to encourage students to translate what they're good at right now and find a way to bridge the gap into what they're doing. Like you were saying in a history class, you know, maybe you don't need to write specifically about history, but how can we take the key concepts? and find something that you're interested in. How would you encourage students to um, embrace the inevitable changes that they're gonna be going through, right? Like they're in college, which is a change itself. 
and quickly they're going to graduate and then go yeah. out. The, you know, we always say this in higher education, and I don't even like saying it. The real world, right? Yeah. The world We're right. making the real world right now. Yeah, that's exactly. our job is to construct it. We're exactly. co-creating this reality together, everybody. Hop on board. But, you know, I guess the question really here is, is it seems like you embrace the mentality of, you know, life is a big journey and take the, the experiences and skills that you have with you and find a way to translate it into your current day. How do you encourage students to do that as they're going through such massive change in their life? Yeah, it's it's hard because we're. So when I look back to when I was 18 to 23, we're we're frequently it's hard to have long term plans because you're just still excited in some ways to be alive right and that three months seems like it's forever when you're eight you know the end of the semester is like ah that's so far but now when we think about it it's just like oh three months is barely even a planning cycle right i mean i i'm more looking at like a five-year plan um and so part of it for me when i talk to students is to try to get them to in some form or another, write that stuff down of like, hey, so what did you learn? You know, what's a skill that you got out of this? It might be um, data visualization or how you do a good presentation. It might be, oh, yeah, I learned a little bit about how I talk that to my peers in this class. Uh, it may have been like, oh, I learned a little bit more about my the motion of my body. Uh, and because otherwise we'll forget it and we won't remember like what it did or what it could offer for us. And so being able to, you know, have these moments of, of almost metacognition, right? Where you stop, you look back and be like, hey, what did I learn out of this? And and then that way, a student over the course of the three, four months that are a semester is already beginning to build their catalog of like, oh, here's all this stuff I did learn. Wow, I can now, oh, I, I can use Photoshop. I didn't really, nobody taught me how to use Photoshop, but I had to kind of learn how to use Photoshop to make this flyer for this class that I'm taking with Angelo, right? And so students can kind of like stumble onto stuff in the best way possible, where I frequently feel like us giving them Learn Excel, that's like, that might just be setting them up for something that's going to be outdated because, or they can just learn Excel on their own, right? Our goal should be like, okay, learn why Excel matters. You know, what can you, what's the job of something like an Excel, like PowerPoint? Because those things, in, in 20 years, we may not be using them, but you're going to need to know how to communicate with people effectively. You're going to need to know how you examine data in a way that you can make an inference from. Uh, and so I think that's where we, we, if we're doing our job correctly as educators, that's where we live. And students doing their job correctly as students, part of what they're doing is constantly developing a skills and disposition inventory. So they can just like take that out there with them. And when they have their first freelance gig, be like, oh, yeah, I can probably do all this stuff and then just lie their way through it. I also just want to point out something um, that you know, random skill sets and stuff and doing things like that you're passionate about me with music, running a music podcast. I have acquired a lot of really cool tech skills and just creating yeah. skills, right? And honestly, Dr. Prita, that's how I got connected with you in doing our, you know, morning show, as you're calling it, right? These yeah. That we've done. I have been asked to step up to the plate. I was never taught this. I, you know, I, I have an undergrad and a master's. I'm not doctors like all of you. I'll get there one day. But, you know, I 
I never learned this in a classroom. But then in my professional career, out of nowhere, age 32, 33, here it is, pandemic, and I'm asked, hey, step up to the plate. You've got these skill sets. So just not even a question, just throwing it out there. Like I encourage people to just, you know, embrace who you are and you never know when things that you're good at can come into play into a different sphere of your life. Um, so it's kind of crazy to me, that thought. The, the way I learned um, sort of Photoshop and graphics was being, uh, again, a punk rock promoter, right? It was like, I wasn't going to pay somebody to do that. Not when I can just like stumble through this program, read a little bit online about how the basics of it work, and then just trial and error it. And, and you know, some of them will be terrible, but some of them will be hilarious. And then you're like, oh, okay, I learned that. I'll remember sort of my order of operation for how I made this one that looked like it was the cover of a Dungeons and Dragons module. And I will do something from there, but it like has the creativity of the band that you're working with and all that kind of stuff where students constantly being able to learn how to learn is, is I think going to be so much the future of, of education because the, in a lot of ways, content, especially in sort of STEM fields, is just going to turn over so quickly. It, you know, we're going to learn so much more about how viruses work because of COVID and that in some ways, all of the stuff that we used to think about, like um, how we create medicines, all this stuff's going to change because we're going to be like, oh, no, 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 we had to, we had to save us all. So we invested all this money into technology. That's really going to help with these other forms of viruses. And so, so people moving into medicine fields in the next five years, 10 years, 20 years, how we looked at it in the past isn't going to always matter as much, but if we can teach people how to think about change, how to think about project management, how to think about incorporating those big ideas into who they are, then we've done our job. And that's actually a really good... I didn't want to get off track there, but I just wanted to add the secret to getting a doctorate for me was I sat beside smart people. I sat beside Patrick for four years. So, <laughs> hey, uh, been that your was my secret. <laughs> Whatever gets you through it. It was also his downfall as well. It's probably why it took a few months longer, right? <laughs> so my my pressing question is, I want to know when the Jonas and Angelo show is going to come back in the mornings. Yeah. Uh, next time we have to talk about pass no credit. Um, there will also be an additional one, I think, on this on trying to get student input on what they're looking forward to in the fall. Uh, of just trying to get a little bit of a lead on because uh, my assumption is right now, and I know that this is like very Point Park specific, so I'm sorry. Oh, um, okay. How do do students want to have face-to-face -face classes again, if possible? That's an assumption that we're working on, but we don't know, yeah. right? And so I, like, I kind of want to get student input on this because students are fundamentally the drivers for how we should approach this stuff. Yeah, which is exciting to me because like you said, at you know, right now we're defining kind of our what we will be experiencing in the future. And, and I tell students and teams and people that I'm working with, you know, right now, don't be afraid, right? Because literally yeah. the, past, the past year, you have probably beta tested so many things and you figured out what's going to work, what's going to fail, or what, what could we probably work on to make work in the future? So, you know, now's the time to really be chasing opportunities and really re-envisioning things. Yeah, it's and it's hard because scarcity makes people nervous, right? Mm -hmm. And it seems like as, as things aren't going as we imagine them to go, people have a tendency to close in instead of being like, oh, this is when we, we open our arms, right? And we just like, well, let's embrace potential failure. And 
sometimes that's what you need because then it's just like, oh, that one's not going to work anymore, right? We, we are not going to be able to go back to using that tool. So let's think about maybe more of a hybrid course approach or is everything going to now be high flex or then I'm just making all these up because I don't really know what they are yet. But um, just some of those kind of questions that that people can then explore because we did have three semesters of everybody having this same experience and realizing that some courses are are very easily taught through a synchronous learning session students don't have to commute as much faculty are comfortable doing it at home there's a lot it helps kind of like even the playing field for students but we also know there's going to be courses that students love and need to come back and be on campus for and so let's let's pay attention to that and not just assume like let's cram everybody back into a building again yeah, I absolutely 100% agree. And as we kind of begin to near you know, the end of our time, uh, I want to know what you're most excited about on the horizon, you know, whether it's school, students, higher ed projects. Oh, um, students. Uh, th that's what I'm, I'm most excited about. So when I see how much more engaged are I'm thinking mostly now about undergrads, and, and and this is this is my own lens right now. I'll be able to talk about graduate students later, but just for like uh, undergraduate and people who are maybe just starting high school, when I look at what they're doing, um, just as far as being socially active, socially conscious, aware of how to take advantage of their educational opportunities, their push towards equity for all in education. That to me is just like, oh, that's incredible. My job as an administrator now is to just surf that wave, is, is to make sure that I'm removing obstacles from those students as they try to make this happen, instead of putting up obstacles in their way based on something that may have been true in 1950 may have been true in 1980 may have been true even in 2000 which is not that long ago but for now doesn't really shouldn't be a thing that we care as much about and so just trying to remove that stuff and, and let students do the thing that they are interested in doing which is like help shape their new version of the world because they have a very different one than the four people on this uh video screen do and I love the surfing reference, big ocean person myself. I know fans. you are. And if we're talking about uh, <laughs> lyrics and music, everybody look up Jimmy Buffett. Einstein was a surfer. Just, uh, so uh, do you remember Megan Fahey who worked here? Yeah, yeah. Um, she's a huge closet Jimmy Buffett person. So I <laughs> will ask her about that today at Bad Practice. Absolutely. Some good <laughs> lyrics. Dennis, some final thoughts for Dr. Prita before we start to wrap up the show today. Well, Dr. Preeta, I really appreciate your energy. Um, and again, I embrace your leadership style. I love how you uh, explained how you approach many different things. And I have to say that uh, that's a lot of my style as well. As I know it doesn't come out sometimes in this show, but uh, I love it. But I guess my only, I have one more question. And you right. kind of asked me what my music was, but, but what's your all-time favorite band? My all-time favorite band are the Dead Kennedys. Uh, not even close. Uh, so I grew, as you know, I grew, I grew up in Nevada. So I, there's a West Coast angle to this. And um, I grew up under Reagan. And so he was going to put missiles in Nevada that were going to kill us all. Uh, that was my thought as a young, as a teen, right? And so when there was a band that was ex um, very anti-Reagan, in addition to like all the crazy conspiracy stuff that Jello Biafra was spinning and the fact that it was 
exceptionally fast and had a country western element it was just like oh this is the greatest band of all time um and so i'll go back and listen to, to the dead kennedys catalog you know a couple times a year usually um and as far as like a, a in the non-punk uh world this is gonna sound very traditionalist but I, i'm i'm a beatles person um sergeant pepper to me like there's a reason it it changed everything and I, I was never a big Beatles listener until I was probably 31 or 32. And a friend of mine was just like, oh, your key is don't just listen to the hits. You know, everybody knows I want to hold your hand, right? I was like, oh, wait, really? They have other stuff? <laughs> so, you know, I get, I listen to the other material. It's like, oh, okay, my mistake, not theirs. Yeah, no, correct me. I think even Sgt. Pepper, I mean, that was my first big foray into the Beatles. So you're right, though. I mean, everybody goes to the hits, but I mean, Jeez. Yeah, right. Uh, the whatever it is for Mr. Kite. That song is never going to be a hit, but that song is pleasantly weird. It's some good stuff. Yeah. Angelo. Uh, in this show. I mean, I'm a huge Beatles fan. First, my dog's name are Yoko and Lennon. So. Oh, OK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is just awesome. And um, I, Joe, uh, Dr. Preeta, I just really... No, Jonas is fine, as everybody in here knows, but I appreciate the fake formality. <laughs> uh, well, Dr. Preeta, I'm going <laughs> to... Team here. And, and not... Until we share a stage, when our bands finally get to play out again, then then you can give me Jonas on all of these. <laughs> um, but I, I want to thank you for coming on, because I, I truly believe that... Um, somebody who is in your position um, at a university that one, just visibility for you in general, like a person in this position is so, so important. And I think Point Park does that so well with everybody from our chairs, uh, provost, president, everybody in between. Um, but I really appreciate just your presence. And I mean, we all knew you were going to come on here and have a sense of energy. I sometimes feel like I got to wake these guys up in the morning too. So <laughs> I just, um, I really coming on and, 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 being authentic and sharing that with our listeners. I try to emulate that um, every day when I go uh, on campus. I even have students sometimes that think I'm a fellow student because of, I guess, some of the ways that I dress. So thank you for being here and for being an inspiration for me and for many others. Right. Uh, in case you couldn't tell everyone, I had a super time. Uh, and, and thank you for using the pleasant euphemism of has a lot of energy um, because uh, there's a very fine line between that and hyperactive. So... <laughs> We do our best to control it, Angelo sometimes, but it's hard. Well, I'm, I'm not talking about him. <laughs> I know. I'm talking about me. <laughs> I know I got to go take a nap after we're done here. But, uh... <laughs> well, how can we stay connected to you, Jonas? Both you and your band. Where, where can we make sure students and everybody can follow? Oh, us? yeah. Um, I'm always available at jprita, um, Point Park EDU. I'm also like all over the, the web pages at point park for lack of a better term right because of, like i help run the cie and now i'm this acting provost guy where i feel like i need to read the lines hello all, i'm your acting provost um and then uh the band that i'm in right now uh, is called wraith rider you can check us out on Bandcamp. eight songs 11 minutes so it won't take much of your time <laughs> awesome well, we'll definitely make sure we put it in the show notes so people can check out some of that for sure only if they want to have an experience <laughs> That's what we're all about. It's the human experience at the end of the day, right? Yeah, very much so. <laughs> and, and I just want to thank all of you. This was really fun for me. And oh. I, anytime you need a guest, just let me know. 
the day ahead of time and I'll show up. <laughs> we will certainly do so. Like you said, and from all of us, you know, we thank you for being here today. And, you know, for our listeners, like I said, for those of you who have the opportunity to interact with Jonas or see him around campus, say hello. He's an awesome individual. And like I said, we hope you experience, you know, the same things that we do in and out of the classroom and, and meetings rooms uh, with Dr. Prita. It was passion, his authenticity, you know, and the courage to explore is really a big thing because again, your diverse experiences is what is going to be the lens through which you look at the world, solve problems, as well as pursue your own goals and initiatives. So get out there, heed the words that Dr. Prita said this morning. Sorry, Jonas, that's yeah. what we do. <laughs> uh, but um, thank you everybody for tuning yeah. in to another episode. And we definitely look forward to having you back on the show. Thank you very much. Have a great day. Right.